0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight.
1: Hello from Nashville.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have two special guests. We have Jeremy Lickness.
2: Hello from Atlanta.
0: And Michael Crump.
2: Hello from Sunny
3: Redmond.
0: Now, we haven't had you guys on the show before, so do you want to give us a brief introduction who you are and what you do?
3: Sure, I'll start. My name is Michael Crump. I am on the developer experience team at Azure and uh, I am trying to make sure that the developers have a lovely experience as uh, they're getting started and
2: working with Azure. And I'm Jeremy Lickness. I'm on the cloud developer advocacy team and what we're doing is, is very similar to Michael's mission. We really have the developers backs. So our mission is to remove friction, to support developers, and really work with the teams across the board so that there's a a positive experience and that developers are getting the things they need. You know, for example, we are a different Microsoft and we just started assembling teams. We've got a team specifically for Node.js that's led by John Papa, who's pretty well known out in the Node.js community. We've got people like Simona Coton and Asim Hussain from London. We've got people in New York. We have a machine learning and artificial intelligence team. We have a Go team. So we're really embracing a lot of these open source community projects and looking at ways that we can bridge the gap between engineering and the community and, and make things effective. And I know that sounds like a marketing pitch, but all of us actually come from backgrounds in the community and have stepped into this to to make those connections. So it's pretty exciting. We're focused on improving documentation, improving content, and on experiences like the one we're going to talk about today.
0: Nice. Uh, John Papa is actually a regular on the Adventures in Angular podcast that we put together on this network. So, um, terrific guy. Definitely. He's fantastic. everywhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, he is. And, and I've known him for forever. I know I'm not supposed to mention it, but I, I met him back in the Silverlight days. And uh, have known him since then. So that probably dates me pretty well. That word is banned. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Can't say Silverlight no more. It's
1: before my time. I don't even know what that is. <laughs>
2: uh, now I'm, I'm feeling, feeling old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I could probably explain wh- wh- what I think it is, but then I would be using words that you don't want me to use either. So, <laughs> Le- But let's just dive into this. So you're on an ad- advocacy team out there, you know, letting people know, hey, look, we've got this awesome resource for you to deploy your apps on. I mean, I don't know, people have different opinions of Microsoft and thereby different opinions of Azure. What is it about Azure that people should be excited about? And then we can dig into, you know, the web apps for Azure.
2: Sure. So Azure itself as a a platform, it's, it's a little daunting when people first see it. I know Even earlier in my career when I started to plug into it, there's just so many services. And one of the things we're doing is trying to create that easy path so that you start with not, hey, what service can I use? You start with a problem that you're looking to solve. We want to understand that problem and provide the solution. And what's amazing about Azure is it is continuously evolving to meet those needs and those solutions. And a huge example of that is how it's grown to embrace open source over the past several years. So the original Azure story was very much a Microsoft story, very much focused on C-sharp and .NET, and there were ways to embrace other technologies, but that messaging wasn't there and the the tooling wasn't there. Well, what's happened is a lot of effort has been invested into really looking at at several aspects, but the two I want to focus on are, one, making that experience easy for any developer, regardless of the platform that they're on or the language that they use. That means that it's equally open and easy to use for someone who's on a Linux machine versus someone who's on a Mac versus someone who's on a Windows machine. And then when they're deploying to Azure and they're standing up applications, they're able to do that in the platform and language of their choice. So it doesn't matter if you're a JavaScript developer, a Python developer, a PHP developer, a Go developer, all of these languages are being embraced by the ecosystems. That's the the first point. The second point I want to focus on is standing up applications especially in production is tough and there's a lot of assets and resources that go into doing things like maintaining the integrity of the site keeping it up scaling to demand and what azure's done is provided a bunch of different services and facilities and ways to interface with those services and facilities that really sort of put the easy button on maintaining infrastructure and it's never going to be as simple as pushing one button and you have a perfect load balanced production site that can handle millions of visitors. But there's a lot of prescriptive guidance, a lot of starting templates, and a lot of services that work together to make it possible for even a developer who's not as familiar with the operations or infrastructure side to get started with standing up and deploying applications out to the cloud. I'm
0: just going to echo this. I mean, we were at uh, AJ, who's another host on this show, and I were out at Microsoft Connect in New York. And that was the big message was any platform, any developer, any language. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, no matter what you're working on, it seems like Microsoft wants to provide you a nice, easy solution for that.
2: Right. It's very much changed from the here's the place to bring everyone to .NET to if you're a developer, <laughs> we want to make life easy for you, regardless of what type of developer you are, where you're coming from. Yep.
3: And besides the platform, and besides like the language, the the other thing that I came in from from a lot of a Windows background was also having that full tooling support, so that rich command line interface that you know maybe we've seen uh, people maybe demoing Cloud Shell, which is inside of the portal, which we may get to later, um, or also you know using Terminal, but also that's available on things like now that's called Bash on on uh, Windows, so. It's pretty amazing to have that that kind of that kind of tooling support. Yep,
1: I just wanted to chime in too. Like we're talking about, um, you know, all these different uh, features that are available for you know, no matter what your language is. But as somebody who is relatively new to the community, still. Um, you know, I've started looking at Azure a little bit. And like one thing that really excites me about it, I got started before I switched over to Node and JavaScript. I did a lot with Ruby and Ruby on Rails. And um, Heroku does a lot with like the, the you know, newbie dev community. But I see like so much, you know, like the portal is so easy to use. And you guys are putting out so many great videos and tutorials that um, like I'm excited about everything that you know, you can do with Azure that will help reach people who are just getting started. So I think like you shouldn't be intimidated, you know, from it. Um, you guys have great resources, no matter what your skill level too.
3: I think that's interesting, especially about the portal is that now, you know, we've gotten used to, you know, maybe using uh, the portal to start, you know, spinning up an app service, etc. And now going back to the command line, you want to do this in a uh, PowerShell, go for it bash command prompt you want to use this in terminal like wherever wherever you know but you want to create a new resource you can uh which you once you learn it through the portal you can do that same sort of thing through the command line
0: well and not, yeah, but, not just the command line i mean you've also got it hooked into visual studio code and visual studio and a lot of these other tools and so i mean you, you can conceivably do it from your ide
3: absolutely in, in a session that i'm doing upcoming is uh i'm Basically, using um, Visual Studio and a SQL Server Management Studio to do all of my all of my deployment needs, creation, and everything. So, yeah.
2: And, and that's something funny because I just recorded a, a video for the Dev Center, and I want to talk about Dev Centers in a second. But when I'm working on my traditional .NET applications using Visual Studio, we're very much used to that experience of being able to configure dialogs from within Visual Studio, sort of the right-click publish. And that experience is there and connected to Azure. However, when I'm working with Node and when I'm working with uh, Linux command sets, command lines, when I do some Go development on the side and I'm not calling myself a Go developer, I just dabble. But those experiences, I'm more used to the command line and we've got a full set of tooling that goes there and in giving talks that or to an audience that may have a Mac, may have a, a Linux machine, may have a Windows machine. It's pretty cool to see our, our cross-platform tools like Visual Studio Code that literally I had a laptop crash and had to install on a Mac. And I was originally doing the presentation on Windows, but I was able to pull down the repository, set up Visual Studio Code, and provide that presentation from that, that other machine, which is, is a pretty amazing experience.
0: I think one other important aspect of the experience around Azure that is, in my opinion, very well done by Microsoft, and it kind of surprised me the first time I saw some of this, but it it's well done, and that's the documentation. So you know, I went in to check out uh, web apps for, on Linux, which is what we're you know here to talk about today, and I mean the, the documentation was there; it was great, very clear, easy to follow. Uh, lots of pictures, tells me what versions of stuff is available. I mean, just it, it's super well put together.
2: And I wanted to to share that, too, because we'll be covering a lot of topics here. And there's a great launching point that's a very easy URL to remember. And I know we can provide it as well. But the aka.ms is a URL shortener. But aka.ms forward slash apps, APPS underscore node takes you right to the Node Developer Center. And what we're doing is focusing on dev centers that surround different language platforms and topics. What's interesting and what I think a lot of people don't realize is that documentation is an open source project. And we do accept pull requests from the public. So this is a unprecedented for Microsoft at least way to look at a document realize that maybe something's wrong or something's missing and be able to directly impact that documentation whether it's asking for support or even fixing the problem and submitting a pull request to have that merged into the mainline documentation
0: yeah if you want more information on that in particular um, we interviewed Dan Fernandez at Microsoft Connect um, in New York City, and uh, that was posted last year. And so he talks about the whole system and how that all works. So I'll put and, a link I, to that in the show notes.
3: And I found that another thing that's really nice about that is that there's also a comment section that's down at the bottom of the help documentation, so people can leave comments on documentation. And I have actually found some articles, and I went down there and I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, that would be a nice uh, addition to add. Or maybe they found something instead of doing the pull request, they just they just topped it up. So it's helpful for for people that uh, that just lands on
0: the on land on those pages. All right. Well, let's let's dive into the web apps on Linux. So what what exactly are we talking about here? I I think you can give a better introduction than than I can at least.
2: Sure. So web apps itself is a, a service that has been around on Azure for a while, but it's really the web application as a service offering. So it's the idea that As a developer, I should not have to worry as much about the underlying infrastructure and operating system and platform. And instead, I can focus on what's unique about what I'm doing, which is the code, and get that published out onto a web platform. So what we have is this concept of of app services, and they're specifically web app service. Traditionally, that was hosted in a Windows environment. Now we're introducing, and, and this is in preview now, so it's not fully baked and in production, but we're getting there. And in fact, this is a great time to talk about it because we want to get feedback on the use of this new feature. But we've got this web app service that's stood up on, on Linux. And what that provides is a way to take your application and really reduce the friction it takes to to publish that out on the web. And it provides all of the features that you would expect around a service like this. For example, You can choose the size of your infrastructure. So if you have a small website with not a lot of activity, that's a possibility. And, of course, you're only getting billed for what you use, so you can have a a cost-effective approach to doing this. However, you can also scale your site up. And, in fact, some sites that have a, a massive volume of traffic, you may need several nodes. If you want high availability, if you want to be able to roll out updates Without taking the site down, you want to have several endpoints behind a load balancer. Now, traditionally, I've been on that side. I've been on the teams where I've had to help stand up servers, put them behind a load balancer, configure it, getting it working, and it's it's not fun. And really, what this app service on web app on Linux does is provides a means where, through some command line tools or even sliding some dials in the user interface, it's really as simple as that. You can scale out your instances. It automatically provides the load balancing in front of it. If you want to scale it across regions so you're concerned about, well, not just having it in the Eastern US, but I want Western Europe or other regions, you can also set these up and load balance across them all through the tool and through the UI. So there's a lot of other nuances and dials and and widgets that go with it. But in a nutshell, it's a way to quickly and easily host a web application. Because it's on Linux, we now have access to a broader open source set of tools, whether it's a Node.js client, whether it's uh, you know Flask on, on Python or some other of those tool sets. And it makes it extremely straightforward and easy to set up how large you want your host to be and how many instances, how to scale that out.
1: I wanted to ask a quick question here based on some stuff that I was reading this morning. Um as somebody who has only ever used a Mac and I've never worked on Windows, can you kind of go over some of um like the different libraries or or different things that you would want to configure within your app that are a little bit more difficult on Windows and why um having Azure available with Linux is like so awesome. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so so there's a, a targeted answer and a, a broader answer. So when you're specifically talking about Node, Node, Node was a, a product that was originally created on that, that uh, type of runtime. There's a lot of tool sets and, and mature, I guess, platforms for that, and it was later ported to, to Windows. But I think more specifically, when you look at the tool chain and the – IDEs and the ways that people like to develop applications, it's not so much about Node. I can run a Node app on a Windows machine, but it's about the tooling and the build processes and all the tools and technology. And some of those tools have been Windows, but the open source ecosystem has a much broader set of existing tools and ways to develop that are developed for targeted platforms like Linux. And so this opens up the ability to take advantage of those tools, have them part of that tool chain, and have a consistent experience. I mean, one of the things that is a challenge for a developer, for example, if I am developing on a Mac or or Linux, is if my environment comes into play, I want to have a consistent experience for that environment. I don't want to develop on one environment and publish to another environment, unless there's a layer of abstraction that that takes away any potential conflicts or dependencies or things like that. So this is going to allow someone to build something in a Linux environment, have their set of tests and tools and all of that process around it, and then deploy it to a very consistent experience that's not a set of tools trying to translate or map that runtime to an underlying Windows kernel. It is actually running it on a Linux machine, if that makes sense.
1: Yep, yeah, like the stuff that I was specifically watching this morning, they were talking about um, people having issues trying to set up Image Magic on Windows.
0: Hmm,
2: and, and that's an example of of part of the tool chain, right? So as part of your build, you would want to set that up and have that you know process your assets. And if you've got a much more consistent experience with that on on the Linux side, then that's a possibility. But there, there's also, I mean, when we talk about this, and I'm talking about the tools, uh, another aspect to think about is what we call the continuous deployment and and integration pipeline. And this is the the concept that there is a step as a developer that I can take to build a tool on my machine and I can use that, but that's not necessarily what's gonna go into production. And traditionally, years ago, if we had this discussion, we'd be talking about either having a build box, maybe a manual process for someone to copy assets or maybe setting up a dedicated server. What's nice about the way that this has evolved, and and in today's world, we have the ability to make a change, to run tests locally, make sure it looks well, and then commit that to whether it's a a local Git repository, whether it's GitHub, whether it's Bitbucket, whether it's Visual Studio Team Services Online – we can commit those changes and have a pipeline that will automatically build, run, test, uh, do a smoke stream, whatever you need to feel confident about the code, and then deploy that into your target environment. So another thing that the, the Linux web apps provides is that integration, that ability that I can make a change in my node app, I can check it in, it'll run through all the tools that I'm used to, but automatically be deployed to the site. And um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we have a, another feature called deployment slots as well that we can talk about in a, a little bit that actually makes it easier to roll back or test changes as you're staging them to be deployed as well, which is pretty amazing feature.
3: And I think one thing that, uh, just to go back and help clarify, is that out-of-the-box web apps on Linux uh, is, is supporting the application stacks of Node, PHP. Ruby, and .NET Core. And uh, with Node.js, we we're actually having another conversation about this before, and maybe, Jimmy, you can chime in again. But the different types of runtime that's available in a Docker container, I think it goes up to like 6.x. But if you wanted to run something, for example, of the 7.x, you could put that in its own container.
2: You think that's worth exploring more, Jimmy? Uh, that is that. That's actually important to note because that is the mechanism behind what makes web apps on Linux work. Is the fact that it is based on Docker containers, and these are the Linux-focused containers as opposed to the Windows containers, obviously because it's a Linux framework. What Windows, what Azure does is provides a set of pre-built containers that have a set of runtimes. I think it's Node versions four through six. Mm-hmm. And there's certain dot release. Now, those containers have been specifically built so that they have you know several different features. One of them is they have, of course, that version of Node pre-installed with some supporting tools. They also have a secure shell server. So by having that in the container, it makes it possible for developers to remote into a container in production and troubleshoot issues that they might be having. And then it'll also mount the file system directory so that as you make changes and deploy updates to your Node application, that container is able to pick it up without actually modifying the container itself. It's just picking up the content of the files that change. Now, having said that, those are the built-in containers, and someone may take a look at this and say, oh, I can only go up to version 6. What about version 7? What about version 8? Well, that's the beauty of this is because It is container based if you can build a node app in a container you can deploy it to this service so you would be able to create a container that runs your custom version or maybe your edge version of node deploy your application to that container and use that container image with this app service so you have your custom container you're serving the website through that but you still have access to the ability to scale the size of the host that's running the container scale out your container instances and at certain levels there's even automatic scaling. So what that means is based on CPU load, based on memory load, you can have Azure automatically respond to that load and spin up new instances for you.
0: So one thing that I'm I'm seeing here then is that um and and I talked to some of my DevOps friends, they use containers to do their deployment. Um But uh, sometimes what you want is you don't want it to, okay, let me back up. So a lot of the people that I know that use the containers, what they do is they build kind of a container that has their app in it, and then they just create a whole bunch of instances up on wherever they're hosting it. So in this case, it would be Azure. And then when I need to deploy, it tears, tears them down one by one and puts a new one in their place. But sometimes I, I want some of that consistency or I, I might have logging or something else that's going on on that server that, that I want to keep, right? That's going on in that container. So do you, do you have all of those files kind of sit off in some shared folder somewhere that, that everything can access? Or how, how do you manage some of the shared state across the application stack? Or, do, or when I run an update, does it not create a new container and does it just update everything in place?
2: And that's uh, an experience that changes based on the way you update. So that's one of the facilities of this web app service is it does mount a common storage. And that is how you maintain consistency for things, just like you mentioned, logs, et cetera. So in the pre-built images, those images are already configured to use that common storage space and to emit the logs in a way that you can just configure it to the portal and view those with a custom container it is going to update that container image but you are still able to mount that common storage so you have a little bit more setup but even with your custom image you can take advantage of those features and there's a a management platform a deployment platform called kudu k u d u that is part of this and it's what really manages the deployments and takes the the pain away from the Developer. So whether you're deploying a custom image or whether you're deploying files from a, an updated node and you're committing them to your local Git, Kudu is going to pick that up and orchestrate the entire deployment so that it has a very consistent behavior so that it get, gets out to the containers that you want. But so to your point, you have some consistent experiences such as being able to look at logs Or, for example, as I mentioned earlier, being able to actually use a secure shell and remote into a container if there's something you're trying to troubleshoot that's not very clear and you need access to that container to see it. And and that's where I find where I personally
3: spend the most of my time using Kudu is is when I need to drill in, I need to go a little bit deeper in and actually see what is going on behind the scenes. And there's great ways to be able to pull those logs out, pull those down to your local machine, parse them out with whatever you'd like, uh, and be able to understand how that, where that traffic, is, what's happening with the, the traffic there.
2: And, and in the theme of removing friction, it's it's literally taking an endpoint that your web app is on, changing the URL slightly and going to a path and you can pull up a full SSH shell right in the browser to interface with your containers. I would like to uh, ask
4: about the pain points here. What is what is the most painful stuff? About? Like, I'm hearing this stuff about debugging and looking at uh, traffic patterns and stuff. And I'm, 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 like, without knowing a lot about this, it sounds, oh, I'll bet this is painful.
2: <laughs> so... So I guess uh, you know pain points, and I'll let Michael chime in as as well in a second. The things that I'm I'm familiar with are, uh, I think, pain points that exist in any type of deployment, especially if you're scaling multiple containers. It's you know how is the application built and how does it manage state, so that if you have an issue, are you able to isolate that issue? For example, it's a, a great thing to be able to remote into a container, but if you have 20 containers running, are you going to be able to remote into the correct container? So backing up from that, the nice thing is that the service is going to orchestrate standing up those containers, but it's really your responsibility to have a consistent way of emitting logs so that you can correlate to what that issue is. So there's, you know, a concept of a correlation ID, for example, in logging so that if I have these aggregated diagnostics that are coming from multiple containers, I need to find that one diagnostic that's my issue and, and be able to, to pour through that information. There's a a few different ways you can roll your own logging and, and do that. But that is something that you would have to set up being, aware of as well. And the other thing is, is there's a constant, I guess, balance between the convenience of automation and and the cost of preparation. And what I mean by that is it's a great feature to be able to auto scale and say that once I have a traffic spike, let's spin up new hosts or containers. But the reality of that is by the time you've identified that spike, it may already be late and you may have some delays. Those containers aren't instantaneous so there is still an art to saying you know what i'm in a season where i may have more traffic i'm going to go ahead and stand up some instances and i'll have to pay for them even though they're not active but that means they're going to be able to respond more quickly to those spikes so there is always that balance and trade-off of understanding your traffic patterns and understanding what you need to do in preparation for that versus in in automation and i don't know michael did you have any other thoughts
3: yeah, so so my 100% reason why I usually go to that uh, portal is more for the debugging and also like process explorers and different types of tools, uh, seeing how long it's been up and the different types of folders. And then if I really needed to uh, drill down and get some of the diagnostics uh, info, it's primarily what I've been using that environment for. But there is obviously... There's more things there, just like I think Jimmy was touching on with the uh, the console that's available uh, that you can you can spin up and uh, you can start working uh, with command of the command prompt or maybe PowerShell.
4: Okay, so you mentioned something about state management about it having an effect on this and being one of the pain points. Can you talk more about that? Is there certain ways that in your applications you should or should not be managing state? You know, assuming, well, I guess we're talking about a node application here, um, that you should or should not be managing state that can cause problems and make it more difficult to deal with issues?
2: Absolutely. So when you're looking at a service like the, the web app service that's scaling out multiple containers, there's Not a guarantee that each request is going to be served by the same container. So if you're doing something like relying on a a local uh, file system or even memory to store certain values or or correlations as opposed to building a a stateless app, then you can run into issues with that. Now, I mean, most of the modern Node frameworks lend themselves to this concept of of stateless, but uh, just as an example – And this is getting a little bit outside of Node, but if I were to, for example, install a local instance of a NoSQL client like a MongoDB, well, that is not going to scale out of the box to multiple containers because we're going to have multiple copies. So I have to be conscious of that fact and look at a common place to store my data and, and model this in a way, for example, that I'm interfacing with APIs and other services or a common database, even a database as a service, for example, if I, okay, so if I need to... Can I, I clarify data. with
4: that? You're talking sure. about if I, in my like instance, in my container, put a MongoDB, so when I get, it shards out, or you know, it replicates out to three instances, all of a sudden I got three instances of Mongo up and running, that's what you're talking about, right?
2: Right, exactly. So, so you wouldn't want to do that with this approach. You would want this to be your web tier. It's a web app on, on Linux. You would want your MongoDB to be scaled in a, a different way mm-hmm. that you know is going to be dependent on how you provide high availability for that Mongo cluster. All right. So speaking of that, I, don't, I want to dig in,
4: ask a question about Mongo as well. Uh, Azure has, uh, it's called DocumentDB,
2: right? Correct. Well, it's actually called Cosmos DB. Oh, okay. We (laughs) rename things. (laughs) (laughs) Is that as of this morning? (laughs) Uh, uh, It's been a a few months, I think, but yes, Documents
4: DB has evolved. Okay, so it's Cosmos, and that's basically uh, an API equivalent of Mongo. So um, if you're using Cosmos, is this all fairly simple? If I was using, say, Mongo Atlas, is this all taken care of and relatively straightforward?
2: Uh, it, it is. I mean, straightforward is, is tough to say with the web <laughs> because nothing about the web is is ever straightforward. But for example, Cosmos DB provides a set of APIs. You can use a document DB if you're used to a SQL syntax. You can use a MongoDB. There's even a, a graph API available. So, there's a a lot of different entry points, but the whole concept is it is a database as a service. So, it has its own dials and switches and levers for managing how you scale out, how you manage consistency, etc. So, for a Node app like this, it's a simple question of making a connection to that database. And if it's hosted in Azure with this Node app, there's actually ways to make it even easier to connect those components together. But it could be hosted on a complete third-party system that has nothing to do with Azure, and as long as you have a route over the internet and can make a connection, then that is something that you can connect to and, and work with from your application. You may have to set up some firewall rules because we look at least privilege right? so we're assuming everything's hostile and we only open up ports, but as long as it's outgoing from the applications and it's making a connection and it's accessible over the network you have, it, it should be pretty straightforward to, to leverage in this type of app. Okay, cool.
0: Well, re- so, related to one of the things that Joe asked, I'm just curious. Um, you know, you mentioned, Joe, the was it Cosmos DB now? It used to be Document DB. Um, is it any easier to access Azure services from these containers um, than it is to just access it from like a server somewhere else? since you're inside of Azure, or is it pretty much isolated because it's a container and acts like its own little server?
2: There are definite benefits to accessing assets within Azure. So you're able to create some partitions and some routing. For example, if I'm accessing another service in the same region, I'm not necessarily going out over the Internet to access that service. I can keep it within... That Azure environment, so there's some benefits there. But at the end of the day, there are routes and there are fast connect routes out to the internet at at large. So it is possible to connect to those other resources. I would say the biggest benefit, if you're able to take all your assets into Azure, is really orchestration. There's a lot of ways through tagging and through something we call resource groups that let you chunk assets together, if you will, and orchestrate them in a way that it's easy to replicate environments. It's easy to manage billing and costs. So there are advantages, but I wouldn't say there's necessarily a disadvantage to connecting to a third party services. There's just advantages to connecting to other resources that are within that Azure ecosystem. Okay. All right. So one other question Going
4: back again to something you mentioned earlier, it's about logging and stuff. Are there any really good like third-party apps or service, you know, services that are out there that work really well in this scenario for uh, management and logging management?
2: That's a a good question. My my familiarity with this is going to be more limited. I deal a lot more in the .NET world with the the logging and and have done a lot of front end node development, but I I can tell you that there is support. There's an, an Azure-based service that not only provides metrics and statistics called Application Insights, but there's also a log analysis service. In fact, I think there was a announcement today about an update to that. And it's possible to look at different types of logging services. So, I mean, to answer your, your question, I know a lot of different companies approach it different ways. There's third-party tools they purchase. There's things like Elasticsearch aggregating uh, logs. There's Azure Application Insights. All of these are compatible and will work with with the tool set. So I'd I'd have a hard time saying there's one that's the the best. I think the message is that most companies that are going into a a more largely scaled system like this uh, may already have a tool that they're working with. And for the most part, most of those tools
0: are You just cut out
2: with what part?
0: Just right there at the very end?
2: Oh, I was just saying that uh, you know most tools should be compatible with this type of, of deployment. Okay. Basically, if it will work with standing up your application on on any type of platform and it, accessing it over the Internet, then this type of deployment is going to be compatible with, compatible with it as well. Cool.
0: So I'm curious. Um, I'm assuming that there are people that are using this right now. Um, Where do you typically see people, you know, pulling this up? Are they hosting their entire app on this? Are they hosting specific services for their app on this? Um, Have they set things up so it deploys, you know, a more complicated setup where it's all load balanced and everything else like we've talked about before? Um, And can you talk about some of the companies and and what their solutions are that they're running on Azure uh, web apps?
2: So I come from a background of business-based consulting. I was in product companies for 10 years, doing enterprise consulting for eight years. And what I was seeing prior to joining this developer advocacy role was companies building new applications who didn't want to have any piece of hardware that they managed whatsoever. So they were completely all in. They were running SQL Azure as a service. They were running web apps. They were running functions for connectors. And so it's possible to set up that entire infrastructure. And what's really nice about it and the feedback I would get from customers are two aspects. One is the the flexibility and elasticity, right? So paying for what they use. And then two is the, the ease of deployment and infrastructure. So in other words, very easy to create new environments, very easy to automate deployments. And so there was a lot of that. Having said that, We've also had other customers that have a lot of investment in physical hardware within their their data center, even on-premise at their company. And so what they're looking at is a way to stair-step into the cloud. And they may do something traditionally what we would call lift and shift, which is take a virtual machine, which is a a massive uh, enterprise compared to containers. But they're taking Mm -hmm. the entire machine operating system, et cetera, moving it to the cloud – But then they're revisiting their web apps and saying, okay, now can I change this into a web app rather than an entire web server running in the cloud? Now can I look at my data side and migrate from a SQL server that's on-premises to a SQL server in the cloud or go from MongoDB? In fact, John Papa just had a series talking about taking a traditional MongoDB app and migrating it to use Cosmos DB. And we're certainly seeing that as well. So it's really the full gamut using it to augment certain services, and there are even ways to securely connect your on-premise network to the premise to the network that's in the cloud, or going all in and really having all of those assets in the cloud. Oh, and uh, one other thing, I uh, think, Jeremy, that probably
3: is worth bringing up here is uh, go, going back to uh, Docker and some of the built-in images uh, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Is that you can find all of the uh, the Docker files uh, on GitHub, and we actually have a, a link that will we'll drop in here, but it's basically just a GitHub.com and an Azure App Service. Uh, but also, uh, all the different types of Uh, docker containers that you can find that are uh are available on docker hub you can also uh, use this
0: so basically what you're saying is um if there's another docker setup out there that you want to run on this you can just set it up
3: yeah yeah you can get you can get started with it
0: absolutely that's nice because then if your template doesn't 100% match up with what I think I not I want or need and I find something else out there that somebody else has done I don't have to go invent it from scratch
3: and and I think that's absolutely what's going to happen over and over and over again is that you're going to find that maybe we don't have exactly what you may want there or maybe we do but if you do if we don't here's a place that you can go and get what you need
2: yep And that really ties back into what I talked about earlier with continuous integration and continuous deployment. It really makes it straightforward. And you may have a mature pipeline in place for working with your applications and creating containers. You may be starting a new pipeline, and you can use these Docker files as as starters to create the images. But what's nice is whether you're hosting them publicly on Docker Hub Or if you're using a private registry, and that can be a private third-party registry or it might be the Azure Container Registry, either way, this is supported by the web app on on Linux. So you can make that part of your pipeline, and what's nice about it is when you publish a new image, the web app service will look at that image, it'll use uh, what's called a webhook, And when a new version is available, it can automatically pull that custom image and deploy that out so that there's a a seamless integration with that. It's literally I check in, my build process creates a new image, that image is published, and if it passes all the checks and gets to the right publish endpoint, the web app service can now pick that up and deploy it without any human interaction. If I want human interaction, I can set it up that way, but I can also make it fully automated.
0: That's nice. Um, I can just see, and, and it's been kind of a pain in the past, you know, you set up a server uh, that's a virtual machine or a, a VPS, and yeah, you don't log into it for three months because your app's running fine, and then you log in and it's, we have 150 million updates for you to run, blah, 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 and if you just keep your container definition up to date, then uh, it'll automatically run all of those infrastructure changes for you so you don't have to worry about it. Exactly. So one other thing that I saw when I was uh, working through some of this um, web apps on Linux um, was the, um, I think it was PM2 for setting up process files. And this was something that I thought was interesting because um, at least um, in my experience, and I'll admit most of my server side stuff has been in Ruby, but, you know, I see a lot of people do this kind of thing with JavaScript as well, where you essentially have your main uh, process that's handling your requests, right? And you can set up multiple of them if you have multiple cores and things like that to take advantage of the, um, the stuff on the machine. And And so I, I noticed that you can set up several instances to run across the cores on the machine, uh, with this PM2 process file setup. But the other thing is, is that sometimes what you wind up with is you also have some worker processes that are doing kind of background jobs. And, I noticed that you can also set it up to run, you know, four of the the web processing things and two of maybe the worker threads and have that all set up or you could put them on separate containers if you want. And and I really like the flexibility of that. I guess what I'm wondering with this though is um, why this particular format and um what what other options do you really have other than just specifying um, run this process with this interpreter at this level with maybe this environment?
2: So the w- one of the nice things about the the node images that are, are built in, and if you're uh, using a custom image, it's sort of bring your own image, right? So mm-hmm. you're uh, responsible for everything. But if you are using one of the pre-built images, there is full support for the production process manager, which is the PM2 package, and that's something that has a a lot of features and capabilities in the context of what it's running on. So it can handle monitoring, it can look for changes and reload files and and handle startup scripts Mm -hmm. the first time it's spun up. So it has all of these capabilities, and these are encapsulated in a a configuration, and then that package executes that, that configuration. Well, what's nice is if you're using that already and you want that type of control, Two things will happen. First, when you configure this in the web app for Linux, for your startup file, you can put in the process.json that has the definition of the the process file for your, your PM2. And the app service will recognize that and use that file, and you can do things like have processes restart if a file is modified, And then that will work in conjunction with Kudu that we talked about before. So a very simple canonical example might be I have a process that's working in conjunction with my app that reads a configuration file. Well, instead of having to restart all of my containers, the way Kudu works is if I check in a change that only changes that one configuration file – then if I'm using the pre-built images, that file gets deployed and that file gets changed on the shared volume mount. The Docker containers that are running this uh, PM2 package will automatically recognize if it's configured that way and say that configuration file changed and just restart the process that uses that configuration file. So it provides a, a streamlined level of flexibility actually within the containers that you're running, and it does that out of the box for you.
0: Cool. Well, I don't. I don't know if I have any other questions. Does anyone else have questions or anything else to bring up before we go to picks?
2: I think we're good. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think. think we're good.
0: All right. Well, if people want to know more about um, this particular setup, or you know, they're thinking, well, gee, I really want to try this out. Where where do they go? What should they do?
2: the The best place is to really start with the the Node.js Dev Center. And that's the, the URL I gave earlier, the aka.ms slash apps underscore node. That'll take you right to a page, has a quick start with getting started with with web apps. But from there, you can drill into specific articles. And and within that developer center, the docs.microsoft.com, you can find a bunch of content that is either focused on Node specifically or that's focused on Web App for Linux. And both of those resources are going to give you all the information you need. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it's an open source project. So if there's documentation that you can't find when you're there, or if you have feedback, suggestions, comments, or changes, feel free to submit a pull request, add a comment, and contact us through that site because our team is looking at this. There's weekly reviews going on to improve that documentation and reduce friction and make it easier for people to get started.
0: Nice. One other thing that uh, I think... As you're used to have, and I I don't know if it still does. You can tell me if you you still do this, but I think you used to be able to go sign up with a, a trial account, and you would get credit. You would get a certain amount of credit to start out with. Is that still the case? Is that something that people can do as well?
3: Oh yes, I was going to say it is. It is the case. You can you can actually sign up and uh, you begin with uh, a couple hundred dollars of a uh, credit. That will at least allow you to go in and try out and explore and see uh, see what we have to offer there.
0: Awesome. And when you sign up, it just automatically grants you that credit? You don't have to do anything special?
3: No, you don't have to do anything special. You uh, you just sign up and you're ready to go.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Um, Now, I don't know if I actually explained to you guys what picks are. Essentially, it's just anything that you like that makes your life better that you want to do a shout-out about. Um, so sometimes the picks are tech tools and sometimes the picks are, Hey, I went and saw this movie this weekend and it was awesome. So, um, we'll go ahead and have the regular panelists go first and then we will let you do some shout outs as well. Uh, Amy, do you want to start us off with picks?
1: Sure. So I am not going to pick an actual like URL or link to anything and I am just going to pick, uh, Having a little bit of like mindfulness when you are waiting on an NPM install or you're running a test suite or something like that. So something I've been trying to do rather than like jumping on Twitter or something like that, just kind of pause and uh, just look out the window or just be present for a few minutes. And that's my pick.
0: Awesome. Joe, what are your picks?
4: Well, now my pick sucks in comparison. Way to go, Amy.
0: <laughs> You're not being present enough, Joe.
1: Yeah. No, definitely
4: not All right. Um, so I want to pick. This is like, I, I'm not even 100% sure this is like a, a, this is definitely not a typical pick. I started watching this show on Netflix called Aunt Ozark, and that's because I'm a huge fan of Jason Bateman, mostly because I'm a huge fan of Arrested Development. Uh, so I started watching this show over Ozark and I'm like, I don't know, four or five episodes in, and I think I'm going to stop watching it, which is weird that I would pick it. I actually think it's a really, really great show. It's well done. And I've, I've heard that a lot of people who really like breaking bad have really liked Ozark. Uh, it definitely feels the same. I watched the first few episodes of breaking bad and stopped watching that as well. The reason being is I'm more of a person who likes stories with heroes, right? The guys to cheer for. And these, Breaking Bad and this one, they're not really those types, types of uh, stories. That being said, I think it's actually really well done and well written and a very compelling story. I just think it's not really for me. Lately, the, in the last week, so this will be my other pick, I've watched the uh, final hour of uh, Star Wars Rogue One like three times just because I love <laughs> that part of the. Well, I like the whole movie, but especially the last hour when they're like assaulting the planet and all the sacrifice that those people made uh, to do what they thought was really important. So that's really more my speed, but I still want to like uh, pick Ozark because it seems like a really well-done show. So there you go. That's a weird pick for me, but there it is.
0: Awesome. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump in with a couple of picks. Um, I've been watching a show. My father-in-law turned me on to this, um, and uh, it is... Travelers, which is another Netflix original. Um, I keep seeing the little box for Ozark on there when I tr- get on Netflix. But anyway, I've been enjoying that. And uh, it, it's kind of a, an interesting show. The premise is you'll get it within the first few minutes. But um, when people are about to die, um, the people from the future can send a traveler back to essentially take over their life. And so instead of them dying, they live on with a new consciousness in them. And uh, anyway, so they, you know, they're basically coming back to avert uh, an apocalyptic future. And uh, it's, it's been pretty interesting to just kind of watch. And what's really interesting is that um, some of the mystery behind it is uh, who else out there is a traveler? Um, because you're, you're really only following one team of travelers. And then the other thing that you're also trying to figure out is exactly what's going on in the future because you don't actually get to see the post-apocalyptic future where they're sending people back from. So you hear about the director and you hear about, um, you know, how good or bad it is in the future. And, uh, yeah, you anyway, uh, it's it's been kind of a fun one to watch. That's, that's pretty much all I have for picks this week. Uh, Jeremy, do you have some things you want to shout out about?
2: Uh, I do. And actually, I wanted to start with, with Joe's pick, the the Ozarks, because um, we've been watching that as well. I think we're about as many episodes in. But the, the reason why we started was because there's a Blue Cat Lounge that's in the show. And it's literally 10 minutes from my house here in Woodstock. <laughs> Seriously? So I've, I've sat on that deck and, and looked out over that, that lake. They did not film most of the scenes in Ozark, Missouri. They filmed them right here. Uh, in Woodstock, Georgia. So it's very strange to see the restaurant that you've been at uh, over the past decade or so uh, featured in a film. So just wanted to, to give that little tie-in. So it's, it's pretty awesome. cool. I think we, we started watching it just for the local scenery and got sucked into the, the storyline. So, so I'll do a, a dual shout out, though. I just invested in a standing sitting desk and it's um, the one I got is the autonomous smart desk two. But I had been putting it off for the longest time. Finally, dove into it, and I am loving it. This is my second day using it. Uh, I do much better, I think, when I'm I'm speaking on on calls standing than than sitting and and sort of uh, bent in front of the keyboard. But I'm able to just position it, and it's got memory settings, so it's been really cool. But what's funny is my second uh, shout out. I spent about. About 20 bucks on Amazon and got a set of LED lights. And these are just little LED strips that I surrounded my room. I face a window and have these colored lights. And it was funny because I always have them on. They just set different mood lighting. And I took a picture of my my desk to, to brag, hey, I got this new desk and it's really cool. And half the people just seemed like they couldn't get away from the LED lights. They're like, man, check out those LED lights. So I have to give a shout out for LED strips in in the home office. It's, it's pretty cool. And and you can say right now I've got a, a nice uh, deep purple glow going. But I tried the strobe setting the other night, and uh, that's a little weird. But it's a, a fun little tool, and it's it's not that expensive to invest in. Where'd you uh, where'd you get those? I got them right off Amazon. I just did a search for LED and controller, and it's uh, some random company. I, I can probably provide a, a link and, and track down my orders. But it's literally a controller. And two strips uh, that are six-foot strips of adhesive LED lights that you can pick up for something like between twenty and thirty dollars.
4: Yeah, go find the uh, link to it. That sounds really interesting. I'd like to. I think I might try it. I will pull that up right now.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna Sweet. I'm gonna plus one your pick on autonomous desks. Which which model did you get?
2: I got the Smart Desk too, and it's the seventy-inch with a wave.
0: Okay. Yeah. I just got the, like their basic model, which is basically their cheapest model. I got two of them and I really, really like them. Um, I also ran into them at CES. They had a booth pretty much right at the front of the expo hall and the, the people at the company are really cool as well. And they had this setup that had their desks moving up and down, kind of dancing. Anyway, it was, it, Terrific company. So uh, I, I'll back you on that both because I love the product and the people at the company.
3: Awesome. I guess I'm last.
0: Yeah. And so I'm ready it, to Michael.
3: go. Let's do this. Uh, so one of the things uh, that I have noticed is that the more that uh, I go to where every day going to work, is getting on a lot of different conference calls. And uh, I'm sure we all have that Problem at times, uh, and so there is a there was a tweet uh, that came out that was called a conference call bingo. <laughs> so basically, uh, there's the board, and as uh, as you're on the conference call, if you're looking for something to do, uh, there is words like "I'm sorry, I was on mute," "I have a hard stop at," "Can everyone <laughs> see my screen?" <laughs> "I have to get back to you." Next slide, please. Uh, anyway, there is uh, it, it has had about three thousand likes uh, since it's been released, and uh, I'll share that with you, uh, with you guys as well. And anyway, I thought it was kind of funny to uh, go through that, and uh, I can at least hit about three to four on each conference call that I am on uh, during the day. Uh, and uh, the second thing is uh, I've been watching a couple of movies here lately, uh, even though this is the one time of the year that we actually have uh, sunshine. Uh, and so we shout out to a movie called Life. Uh, life is a movie about a life form, obviously, that they, that they have found. And uh, there is a uh, – you kind of see what happens uh, throughout the movie with the cast. And at the end, there is an amazing uh, twist. So I don't want to give too much away, but I, I was
4: uh, – was- Does it turn out that it's dead? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, the name! That it would totally be ultimate. Out.
3: <laughs> I'll I will say that I, when I originally saw the name, I did not think that it was going to be a good movie, and it was a uh, terrific. And uh, one other movie is called Get Out. It's also a thriller. You can kind of see my uh, my choice of movies here lately. So they've been thrillers. So Get Out is another really neat movie with a lot of twist and also uh, life. Yeah, that's it.
0: All right. Well, if people want to uh, follow you guys on Twitter or GitHub or I don't know if you have a blog or something like that, uh, where are the best places to keep up on what you're working on? We'll start with you, Michael.
3: Yes. uh, So I have a blog. It's just uh, michaelcrump.net. You can find a lot of different types of topics Obviously, here lately, I've been spending a lot of time with Azure and some uh, posts there on Azure Functions. And uh, you can find me on Twitter simply at mbcrump, and that also uh, that at mbcrump is spread across uh, GitHub and the rest of the social media sites.
0: All right, and how about you, Jeremy?
2: Sure. So I have a blog at the bit.ly short URL. So bit.ly slash coder blog. That makes it a little bit simple because it expands out to my name, Jeremy Lickness. It's uh, likeness without an E or Lickness without a C, however you (laughs) prefer it. But people seem to misspell it. My Twitter is very unique. It's at Jeremy Lickness. And that pretty much links out to everything else I do. My GitHub is also Jeremy Lickness. So uh, I make myself pretty easy to find as long as you get the last name right.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for coming. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up and we will catch everyone next week.
2: Sounds great. Thank you.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com to learn more